0: Here we go. Father, we just thank you this morning for your grace on top of grace, on top of grace. We are humbled to be here. We have the freedom to worship, we have the freedom to hear your word. Oh God, we ask, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds. And I pray that the words we will hear will come directly from heaven, the voice of the Creator of the Father. Thank you for Dan and for using him as an instrument, that your word may be preached and your word may be heard. And I use him greatly, God. And we pray for Pastor Praveen and for others that go through persecution, that are being persecuted for the gospel's sake. Father, we pray, strengthen them. May they stand firm and bold proclaiming the gospel. We know that because of Pastor Praveen going to prison for six months, we heard of so many that heard the gospel in that prison cell. So we give you all the praise and glory you deserve for that. And thank you for using this, dear brother. Now, all around the world, in this city, our nation, we need you more than ever this morning. So we come to you, broken-hearted, but encouraged that we serve a risen Savior. There is victory; He set us free. So now, do what only you can do, and it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen.
1: Thanks, Ronnie. Uh, Richard is on vacation this week, getting much-needed rest. Uh, Andrew was scheduled to preach this week, but uh, his family came down with stomach bug, and so he reached out to me this week, and I said, I'm, I'd, I'd love to be up here again and preach. Uh, full of nerves, of course, but uh, grateful for the opportunity. Let me just pray real quick. Not that Ronnie's prayer didn't do it, but let me, <laughs> let me pray. It helps, sort of helps calm my nerves a little bit. Father, uh, we love you. I'd love to serve you. God, would you take this uh, loaf of bread and feed 5,000 souls this morning? I can't do it on my own. It's only through your power that it happens, but I don't have the credentials to preach a message on suffering. Uh, So may these people hear you in these words and not me, in Christ's name, amen. So our text this morning is 2 Corinthians 4, verses seven through 18. Uh, It's a text on suffering, as I said in my prayer, and and it's, in my opinion, it's the most precise unpacking of the purpose behind Christian suffering. This passage shows both, both the paradox and the purpose in Christian suffering, hence my title, The Paradox and Purpose of Christian Suffering. And it's my prayer this morning that your suffering, that in your suffering, you will forever lean on this passage. Like this will be your go-to passage as you endure Christian suffering throughout your life. Now, there's a tendency in the Christian life to lose heart. We all battle with this. We go through the suffering through affliction, and we tend to want to lose heart in the face of this suffering. And so Paul makes what I like to call a battle cry here in the face of discouragement and suffering. And what is this battle cry? It's do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. He says that towards the end of our text this morning. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So we do not lose heart because there is purpose in our suffering. God will make your suffering count. That's sort of the overarching theme of this whole passage. God will make your suffering count. That is the promise. When we are tempted to feel like suffering is pointless or arbitrary, lean against this weighty, heavy promise that there is purpose in your suffering. The way I want to unpack our text this morning is by first... Uh, addressing the paradox of Christian suffering in verses 8 and 9. And then talk about the purpose of Christian suffering. And I want to show you that Paul makes the point here that that there's purpose in your suffering now. He's making your suffering count now. Not just in the future, which we're all sort of used to hearing, but your suffering is doing something now. And Paul's going to show us that he takes an extensive amount of time doing that. Then, of course, maybe some verses that we're familiar with, he's going to show us that our suffering counts in glory. Suffering has purpose now, and it has purpose in the future. So let's talk about the paradox of Christian suffering. Paul, if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians 4, Paul just finished telling us about how we have this glorious message of the gospel, That that God has given us this glorious, beautiful message to carry around and tell people about Christ. That is by the mercy of God that we get to be ministers of this glorious news, this universe changing news. How we get to preach the gospel and it's through the preaching of the gospel in some strange way God opens the eyes of the blind to see that we get to do this. How beautiful and blessed must those people be who carry the good news. This is the paradox. Because those who knew Paul and knew of his ministry, so Paul was sort of glorying in the excellencies of his ministry, they also knew that he was suffering affliction for this ministry. It doesn't make sense. Why so much suffering for those who are called to be dispensers of God's grace? This is the paradox. Paradox, defined at dictionary.com, a statement that seems absurd but in reality expresses a possible truth seems absurd that god would allow his chosen vessels to be so weak so susceptible to suffering but this is the biblical reality the christian life is paradoxical because the christian life is born out of the ultimate paradox right the the murder of the perfect son of god Christ's death brought life. That's the paradox. His affliction brought comfort. His rejection brought our acceptance. Our affliction is not ultimate because Christ's was. We need to anchor our hearts in this. Put your anchor deep in this. That your suffering is not permanent because Jesus was. Paul answers the paradox by reminding us that whatever we're suffering, whatever your form of suffering is, it is not permanent. And he does this in verses eight and nine. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed afflicted but not crushed do you believe this is this is this really true like for real some of you may feel this way right now you feel forsaken you feel destroyed you feel crushed under the weight of your own affliction and you say I'm not tracking with you Paul like you don't know what I've been through you know I get this this whole Jesus thing but this talk about not feeling crushed, you do not know what I've been through. Paul is not saying that you won't feel these things. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. And I can prove that to you because Paul himself said that he despaired a life. And here he says, you know, you're not going to be driven to despair. Look at the same letter, earlier in the letter, chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Okay, Paul, you know, is is he contradicting himself now? He gets to chapter 4 and he says you're not going to be in despair. No. What Paul is doing here is he's pointing us to the truth that although we may experience Persecution, we may experience affliction and being struck down or fill in the blank, whatever form of suffering you're going through, we're not going to experience the ultimate form of that suffering because Jesus did that on our behalf. That's all Paul's doing here. Whatever form of suffering you're going through, God promises you that you will not suffer the permanent form of that. It's not a paradox because suffering is not permanent. God allows us to have momentary experiences of affliction, but promises that they are not ultimate. They will not last. They're time bound. Put them side by side to sort of see what he's saying here. The momentary experience is that we're afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But the permanent promise is that we're not going to be crushed, we're not going to be driven to despair, we're not going to be forsaken, and we're not going to be destroyed. This is the promise for the vessels of God. Suffering will not last. As a Christian, the way we approach scripture is that it is the authoritative, inerrant word of God. God. That it is 100% true no matter what we feel or no matter what we've experienced. This is the way we approach God's word. So when we pick up 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul tells us that we will not be crushed or driven to despair or forsaken or destroyed. It has to be true, despite what we feel. So if I feel crushed, and the Bible tells me I'm not, then it must mean that I have a narrow definition of what it means to be crushed. I have a narrow definition of what it means to be destroyed. Paul gives us an example of this, of how far we need to expand our definition of what it means to be destroyed in the very first verse of the next chapter. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that is our body, right, is destroyed, he just got done saying we're not going to be destroyed. Few verses later, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made from, with hands, eternal in the heavens. Is he contradicting himself? Like, is something wrong with Paul here? No. Even having his body destroyed did not fit into the category of being destroyed that he's talking about in chapter 4. Paul had an expanded view of what it meant to be destroyed. When you own a mansion, the destruction of your tent does not come across as loss. That's what Paul is getting at here. That your soul is protected from loss. You may experience 80 years of suffering here on earth, but it's not permanent. Your soul is protected by God. That's the promise. What we see is crushed, forsaken, destroyed. Paul says, no, no, you're not because your soul is safe. Not that loss is easy or insignificant. The promise of not being crushed does not take away the hardship of the affliction, right? This is the promise You have two elements in each of these. The first element is the affliction, is the hardship. And the second element is the promise. Just because we have this promise does not mean we're going to have it easy in our affliction. It's hard. And the the presence of that second element, the presence of of that promise, helps us endure the first element. That's the purpose of the promise that we're not going to be crushed, that we're not going to be destroyed. The suffering is momentary while the deliverance is permanent. That's what we have to look forward to in our suffering. Whatever condition you find yourself in today as a child of God, you always have a but not to cling to. You see all these? Hold on to these tight. No matter what you're going through, you always have a but not. You may be afflicted but not crushed. You may be perplexed but not driven to despair. You may be persecuted but not forsaken. You may be struck down but not destroyed. The paradox of Christian suffering, then, is that the carriers of this divine treasure are these frail, fragile, damaged, cracked, weak jars. That's the paradox that we're we're these breakable things, and it's set up that way on purpose. So why, God? What is this purpose? Why so weak? Why so much suffering? Why so much affliction? Remember the two points. He makes your suffering count now, and he makes your suffering count in glory. How does he make your suffering count now? What is the purpose of this now? Because, you know, I capitalize the now here because I think we sort of lose that. We're always thinking, oh, it'll count later. It'll it'll count in eternity. Paul tells us it counts now, your suffering, and how does it count now? Number one. It shows off the surpassing power of God. Your suffering now shows off the surpassing power of God. Look at verse seven. But we have this treasure in Jars of Great, this this gospel message dispensers of God's grace. We have this message, and and what is it in? It's in a jar of clay, weak clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In contrast to the treasure inside, those that carry it are jars of clay, earthen vessels. So this language denotes a general breakableness of the vessel. It's precisely because of the insignificance and unattractiveness of the jar that people clearly recognize the power of the treasure. The jar has to be weak for people to see the power of the treasure. The text says that God set it up this way. In order to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If we are seen as attractive and strong and put together and perfect and unblemished, Then the risk is that people will think the power of the gospel is in us, which is going to send people to hell because we do not have the power to save. We need to be broken. We need to be humbled. We need to be weak so that the power of the treasure is seen. With every crack of suffering in your jar, you show off more and more of the power of God in the gospel. Don't despise your suffering. Don't despise the cracks in your jar for it is through these cracks and this suffering that the surpassing power of God is seen by those around you. More and larger cracks results in the world seeing more and larger glimpses of God. That's the purpose of your suffering right now. Your suffering counts now because it shows off the power of God number two why is your suffering why does it count now it makes known the life of Jesus in others maybe my favorite part of this your suffering counts now because it makes known the life of Jesus and others or said another way suffering works the life of Jesus into others let me just read the read the verses Verse 10, always carrying, so these earthen vessels, jars of clay, us carrying around, we're always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. This is what suffering is carrying around the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be made known or manifested in our bodies. I'm just gonna say it again, verse 11, same thing. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? so that the life of Jesus also may be made known or manifested in our mortal bodies. And he's going to say it one more time in case you didn't hear it for those in the back. Verse 12, so death is at work in us and life in you. This is what's going on in suffering. This suffering is also known as carrying around death. And as death is working in me, life is working in you. And as death is working in you, life is working in me and those around you. The repetition that Paul uses here to make this point should serve to elevate the purpose of suffering in our minds. Three times, one instance per verse, Paul says that suffering is a way to nourish and feed the life of Jesus into others. Your suffering feeds me, my suffering feeds you. That's the purpose of your suffering now. I want to zero in on this. Verse here, this phrase, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. Always, it's just a unique phrase that we're always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. What does it look like to carry in your body the death of Jesus? Maybe it looks like the tragic news of cancer or chronic disease. Maybe it looks like rotten kids don't, that don't respect you. Or... Maybe it looks like prodigal children. Maybe it looks like infertility or car accidents or lost jobs or low income or lost friends and sleepless nights. Maybe it looks like loneliness. Maybe it looks like celibacy in the face of sexual desires. Maybe it looks like struggling with anxiety and fear and depression and doubt. Maybe it looks like early death. Maybe it looks like rolled eyes at the mention of Jesus at your job. Maybe it looks like enduring beatings and jail, and bombings, and decapitation for the sake of Christ. This is what it means to carry around in your body the death of Christ. Whatever your form of suffering is, it is how you carry around and show people Jesus. Suffering, think of suffering like this, it's you're toting around a 2,000-year-old death to show to people. You're toting around the death of Christ in your body. The weight of your suffering, and boy, it can be heavy, is what it costs to carry around the death of Jesus in your body. And notice the text says, always carrying. This is the constant lot of the Christian life. Like I said, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, but through suffering, we give people a divine view of his suffering today. And what did the Roman soldier say of Jesus when he saw Jesus dying on a cross? Surely this was the Son of God. That's the purpose of all Christian suffering. For those that see you going through your suffering, managing your suffering well, and saying about Jesus, surely he is the Son of God. That is the purpose in our suffering. Our suffering counts now because it works the life of Jesus in others. In some mysterious, strange, miraculous way, this is what happens. And this is the purpose of our suffering now. Thirdly, how does he make our suffering count now? It brings glory to God now. It brings glory to God now. Follow Paul's logic here in verse 15 with me. He says... For it is for your sake, for the church's sake, uh, f- so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As grace extends to more and more people, it's multiplication, it may increase in thanksgiving and give glory to God. So follow his logic here I put on the bottom. More suffering, we talked about this in the previous verses, more suffering brings more life because it works the life of Christ and others. And as it works the life of Christ and others, they receive grace. And that's where Paul picks us up here. So that as grace extends to more and more people. So more life brings more grace. More grace brings thanksgiving. It increases thanksgiving. And more thanksgiving brings glory to God. This is the golden chain between what you're going through now and God getting glory. This is how suffering works now to bring glory to God. Suffering brings life. Life brings grace. Grace brings thanksgiving, and thanksgiving brings glory to God. This is the chain, and it all starts with suffering. This is the movement that Jesus started, right? The movement of cross, then crown. Cross, then crown. Suffering, then glory. Tears, then joy. This is the Christian life. Suffering, then glory. Cross, then crown. Notice that Paul says at the beginning of verse 15 that it is for your benefit. It's not just talking individually, it's talking to the church here. It's for the benefit of the church that it works this way. Not only is your suffering linked to God's glory, it is also linked to your neighbor's joy, right? Basically my previous point. Through your suffering, God is shining the light of the gospel into others' hearts. And they become joyful recipients of the permanent promise of life and God gets the glory. Not just for you, it's for others. So your suffering counts now in a substantial way because it shows off the surpassing power of God. It works the life of Christ into others and it brings glory to God now. The second way Your suffering counts. It's moved to future glory. Is that he makes your suffering count in glory. Verse 17 and 18. Let's look at verse 17 first. Paul says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One of my favorite verses uh, there's one version that says it like this: "Was just beautiful words for this momentary and light affliction of ours is producing for us an utterly incomparable degree an eternal load of glory. Producing, if I could, if I could sort of sum up this verse in three words, it would be this: Affliction produces glory." Affliction produces glory. We need to have this on repeat in our brains. Affliction produces glory. In God's marketplace, affliction generates glory. Like the manufacturing line that consumes a raw material in order to yield a more valuable end product, so too our lives are consumed with the raw material of suffering to produce a more glorious, more valuable end product. That's what God is after here. The end product of the Christian suffering is glory. Or, said another way, Christian suffering is the divine manufacturing process for making eternal glory, unending eternal glory. Your suffering is time bound while the glory produced from it is not. Your suffering is finite. It's time bound to this earth. Time bound suffering produces glory that is not. That's what we're getting in our present suffering. In the manufacturing process, the finished good is always more valuable than the sum of its input costs, right? Otherwise, these raw material vendors would just sell to the general public. No, they sell to manufacturing companies. These companies put these raw materials together, and then they sell a more expensive product, and they make a profit. How much more valuable, then, is God's divine manufacturing process? How much more? Paul says, incomparable, you can't compare these two things. The cost it took to get the end product, Paul says, incomparable. Notice the two opposing propositions. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things that blows your mind. You, light and momentary, and its opposite is eternal weight of glory. Light, momentary affliction, eternal weight of glory. And, and some. Mysterious way, light produces weight, and momentary produces eternal, and affliction produces glory. Light produces something heavy, momentary produces something unending, and affliction produces splendor. This is God's manufacturing process. Now, Paul is not being insensitive to our suffering here. He's not directly calling our hardships light and momentary, right? He's got eternity in view. It's comparatively light. When comparing the hardest sufferings of earth to eternal glory, we can even see that suffering as light. This light to heavy and momentary to eternal view of affliction compared to glory is not something we've seen, that is seen. It's not something we experience like we go through this suffering. It's, oh, this is light. No, these are heavy things that we all go through, and they're, they don't feel light, and it doesn't make sense to us that even Paul is calling them light. That's why the chapter doesn't end here. He finishes this thought with verse 18, still continuing this same sentence, that we see this suffering as light and momentary as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This view of suffering happens as we look forward in faith. Just like everything else in our Christian lives, it takes faith to view our suffering the way Paul is asking us to view our suffering. So don't weigh your hardships in the balance of what is seen or what is experienced. Weigh your hardships in the balance of eternity. Experience calls these hardships heavy and long, but faith calls them light and momentary. Faith in unseen future glory eclipses present suffering. Faith in unseen future glory helps us endure present suffering. That's what Paul is trying to get us to see and to look at. Now, there are might come to our minds, comes, comes to my mind, maybe come, has come to your mind before as a suffering saint, maybe a thought like this. God, reduce my present suffering, and I'll gladly give up some of this load of eternal glory. Like, I don't need all of that glory. An eternal load of glory, just relieve some of my suffering now, and I'll gladly give up some of that future glory. I'll give up some of that future glory if it means that my son can walk again. I'll give up some of that future glory if you free me from this paralyzing anxiety. I'll give up some of this future glory if you mend my relationship with my father or fill in the blank. I'll give up some portion of future glory in order to relieve some of my present suffering. Legitimate. It's a a fair plea if, and here's the big if, if your suffering only counts for your future glory, then that might be a fair plea, right? When we ask God for this trade, we have the foregoing of our own future glory in mind. But according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the eternal weight of our own glory is not the only purpose for our suffering. Remember the first point. The other purpose of our suffering is to work the life of Jesus into others. So in asking for this trade, we are in effect sacrificing someone else's future glory on the altar of of our present relief. Would you ask God to relieve your present suffering knowing that someone else's future glory is at stake? Jesus' suffering had the same dual purpose, others' joy and Trinitarian glory. Your suffering has the same purpose. Your neighbor's joy and God's glory. That's why we suffer. When we limit the purpose of our suffering to our own future glory, then we disconnect our suffering with its present purpose. In order to suffer well, we must understand it has a purpose now. Your suffering is worth it. None of your suffering will go to waste It is all for your good, God's glory, and your neighbor's joy. Every bit of your affliction is producing glory. Every trace of grief is preparing for future splendor. Every instance of death in you is working life in someone else. Every speck of anguish is generating incomparable beauty. Every tear sowed will reap joy. That's the promise. It's not pointless or random or arbitrary. It's not meaningless or accidental. Your suffering is worth it. It has purpose. And so Paul says, do not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, these are words that I hardly can speak. They're so heavy to even say in front of suffering believers. Uh, Lord, so let them seek deep into the hearts and the souls of everyone that hears it not because I said it, but because you said it. It must be true. It's hard for us to see. So give us faith to see that even the, the worst of suffering in your book is light and momentary. It's time bound and it's not permanent. That we have a future glory that is beyond comparison that's coming. Would you settle the fears and the anxieties and the worry and the doubt in this room by the precious promise that our suffering counts, not only in the future, not only for our own future joy, but for the joy of our neighbors, the joy for our brothers and sisters in Christ, the joy of those that don't even know Christ yet. Uh, May we not despise our suffering May Christ be seen through these cracks that you have ordained to be in our lives. May his power be obvious because of the suffering that you're asking us to go through. Help us to truly get that and understand that. Help us endure our affliction knowing that we will not be crushed. Help us endure being struck down, knowing that we will not be destroyed. Help us endure being perplexed, but not driven to despair. Keep us from despair, Lord, knowing that our soul is safe in you. So may we look to Christ today who suffered the ultimate punishment and was raised from the grave to secure our eternal Future and our eternal bliss. May you do that in this room and in our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.